Listen up, get ready, I'm not gonna take no more. There's a revolution, a revelation going on in my soul. Buckle up, get ready, we're not gonna sit back. Comrades, sisters and brothers, friends, neighbors, family. Welcome to another edition of the Live from the Heartland show. I'm Michael James, and I'm your host this week for this week's edition, which is for the week of the 8th of April, and we are recording it on the 5th of April, the day after the big elections, not only in Chicago, but in Wisconsin, and probably a few other places. Been a pretty good week. Some of you know that I have a photo exhibit up at Uri Eichen, 2101 South Halstead, there's a closing on Friday night. Hope you can all come out. And off of this exhibit, I've produced a new book, which goes to the printer today. So you'll hear more about that. But it has been a really good week. Now, yesterday was a really special day. I don't know what the horoscopes are, how the stars align, but the former president uh, named Trump, he was indicted. And while he had called for a lot of protesters to converge in, in Manhattan, the crowds were mostly just journalists. Also, on a good yesterday, up in Wisconsin, Janet Protasewicz, a judge out of Milwaukee, was elected to the Wisconsin Supreme Court, shifting the balance of power to the democratically oriented types. And that will have a lot of ramifications about abortion bills and a lot of other legislation up in the state of Wisconsin, our neighbor to the north. And here in Chicago, I'm really happy to say We've been hearing that Dallas uh, was in the lead, that he was a little ahead. We know a lot of money from former Illinois guy who lives in Florida now, was the richest guy named Griffin. I think his name is Griffin. And also the guy who owns Uline, which, you know, if you get tubes and packages and things, you have to send them. Pretty much limited to those guys. They pumped a lot of money. They don't live in Chicago, but they pumped a lot of money into this race. And Brandon Johnson from the Cook County Board, a former teacher, he was elected the new mayor of Chicago. And let me say, we are really glad about it. Some really good victories. And also here in Chicago, and we'll talk a little bit about the election later with our state representative, Kelly Cassidy. Angela Clay did win in the 46th Ward. And Lenny Manahopinwork uh, did win in the 48th Ward. Those are two people we had on the radio show in recent weeks. Moving along on policing and guns, this is from Alternet, which is a great little news service that I get. And Corrine Jean-Pierre, the press secretary for the White House, Tuesday spoke to that horrific event of three kids and three adults essentially being murdered at school, calling it heart-wrenching and infuriating. She praised the 7,000 students who peacefully marched to the Capitol in Tennessee to confront their lawmakers for their failure to keep them safe at school. And she blasted Republicans for shrugging in the face of yet another tragic school shooting while our kids continue to pay the price. And what did the Republican legislators do? Uh, she asked this question. They're trying to expel these three Democratic legislators who joined the protests. Indeed, Speaker of the Tennessee House, a guy named Cameron Sexton, has scheduled a vote for tomorrow, Thursday, that would be the 6th, to expel Democratic reps Gloria Johnson, Justin Jones, and Justin Pearson in retribution for their role in supporting the protesters. Press Secretary Jean-Pierre continued expanding her criticism by saying, what we're seeing from Florida to Tennessee 
in the United States are Republican officials who are doubling down on dangerous bills that make our schools, places of worship, and communities less safe. It's all there, and uh, pay attention, spread it around. Another on the negative things going on, we've had a lot of book burning, I mean book banning. Uh, this is the second time I've tried that joke, but it is uh, akin to book burning. Basically, we have a situation where young white parents, conservatives, are denying their kids and others the knowledge of what was done all around them to black people. You know, someone I was talking with recently said the Bible has more violence and more sex in it than a lot of these books that are being banned. So I'm waiting for like a movement of people saying, let's ban the Bible because it's full of sex, it's full of violence. And if you want to look a little further, and again, I'm going to refer to alternate for the source, Texas is to take up a bill requiring the Ten Commandments in every school classroom. The Texas State Senate Education Committee this week will take up a bill requiring the Ten Commandments to be installed in every public school classroom and another that would allow schools to hire pastors or chaplains instead of counselors. I don't know where these people are getting this, but it's a strange deal going on. And we have to keep having electoral victories like we did yesterday to fight this stuff off. On whether the Environmental Protection Agency is going to tighten limits on mercury and other pollutants from power plants, the new rule would reduce mercury, arsenic, nickel, and lead emissions, which the Biden administration said would protect health. Back here in our neighborhood, once again, in case you missed it, the intent encampment in Tui Park is now cleared and things are getting back to normal. Speaking of the environment and getting rid of gas-powered cars, all you hot riders may want to take note that the end of the gas engine Camaro is now opening a new door for muscle car. General Motors ending the production of the classic American sports car. I never really called them a sports car, but executives say an electric version is likely. Corvette is already planning an electric version. On our sports front, the Bulls looks like they're in the playoffs. You know, they're going to play, I guess they'll be number 10 unless they win another two games. They could move up. If they win that, they'll go on to play the winner of the number seven and eight games. And we're rooting for them. Both our baseball teams, the wonderful White Sox and the Cubs, are both at two and three going into games today, Wednesday the 5th. College basketball is over. Let's give a lot of congratulations to LSU on the women's side and to UConn on the men's side. Next week, all you sports fans, we're going to bring my cousin Adam James back. He wants to talk about a film he's working in, but he also has a lot of sports knowledge, and we'll have a, a little session from Adam James. In case you missed last week's show, we hope you were out doing good, maybe campaigning. But as you probably know by now, you can listen or watch this show and earlier shows anytime you want at youtube.com slash heartlandmedia slash videos. It's also available on Spotify and Google Podcasts. It goes on Can TV, et cetera. But last week, we had Angela Clay, who will be the new uh, alderwoman of the 46th Ward. And we had an old pal from Students for Democratic Society, James W. Russell, who uh, talked about some films he's been involved with making, talked about his new book about retirement, talked about a novel he did about slavery in Texas. It was a really nice interview, and he's quite an impressive young fellow. Well, he's not that young anymore, but a good guy. 
And finally, in the little opening banter here, I'm going to put the pitch out again. We have an engineer who puts a lot of time into this show. Uh, I am paying him out of my pocket, not making enough money to do that. So we are taking uh, small donations, and we have some door prizes, so to speak, for anyone who wants to donate. So contact me, Michael, at fatback at AOL.com if you care to make any kind of donation. All right, we're going to take a little short break, and we'll be right back with our state representative, the one, the only, the incomparable Kelly Cassidy. Stay tuned here on the left end of your dial to Live from the Heartland. Listen up, get ready, I'm not going to take no more. There's a revolution, a revelation going on in my soul. Buckle up, get ready, we're not going to sit back. Okay, welcome back. Welcome back to more Live from the Heartland. This is for the week of April 8th. And we are recording it on the 5th. And my next guest is someone who, it's always great because she never turns me down and comes on the show. The one and only Kelly Cassidy, the state representative for the great state of Illinois from the 14th district. And um, I've got Kelly coming on today to talk about what happened in our election. I'm going to read a little something from Axios Chicago. And they said, Cook County Board Commissioner Brandon Johnson defeated Paul Vallis to become the next mayor of Chicago. Why it matters. The win signals a leftward shift in city politics where a progressive political movement has been gaining strength among voters in recent years. It also reflects the power of the Chicago Teachers Union, whose early support of Johnson catapulted the former teacher and union organizer from an unknown candidate to mayor-elect. Anything you want to add to that, Kelly Cassidy? And good afternoon to you. <laughs> good afternoon to you. Um, and I'm still a little bleary-eyed uh, from not just not just yesterday, but the last five weeks of you know really being in an all-out sprint between the legislative schedule, which is at its intense point, and uh, having having this um, really existential election uh, uh, that that was facing us. Um, you know, this was this was all of those things and so much more. Um, you know, for myself as as a as a member of the LGBTQ community, um, you know, there was an existential threat in Paul Vallis. And I think that um, you know, the other thing that we did in in not falling for his sleight of hand was reject what we're seeing around the country where people get to make up their own truth. Right. This is a guy who went on Dan Prop's radio show who said that the head of Awake Illinois um, should be governor. Um, you know, th that right there, that chunk right there is folks that are responsible for the vast majority of my death threats. Right. And this guy was cozying up to them, but then wanted us all to believe that it was just, oh, it was nothing. It was, I, I don't, I didn't mean it. You know, when he has spent the last three years denying science and aligning with folks who, who want to erase trans folks from existence and, you know, expressing his, his personal opinions on abortion as, you know, he is fundamentally anti-choice and he's a Republican, he said. And we were all supposed to ignore that um, and, and accept as fact that that was just, that, that don't, you know, pay no attention to the man behind the curtain. So I'm proud of Chicago for rejecting alternative facts too. I think it was great. You know, we just didn't know how it was going to go. We had this fear that oh, maybe we weren't as progressive as we were becoming. Yeah. Um, yeah. So we have had uh, uh, this will be our fourth African-American -American mayor. And um, 
you know, all of a sudden out of nowhere comes Vallis, who kind of screwed up uh, school systems here in Chicago, in New Orleans, Bridgeport, Connecticut, and uh, kept they kept pushing how he's the real Democrat. Right. Um, right. You know, um, you went all out for Brandon, for Brandon Johnson, yeah. but you didn't start there. You did support in the in the primary our uh, outgoing mayor, Mary Mayor Lori Lightfoot, um, and uh, I'm you know. Uh, I'm complimenting you that you, uh, you know, I gave you some, you know, what about supporting her and not Chewy originally, but I think what happened for a lot of people around town and yourself included was once that was Brandon was in the primary, you were all in. 100%. And, and, you know, we, as and now in my role as, as democratic committee person here in the 49th ward, um, you know, this is an organization that has a proud tradition of member-driven endorsement processes. And in the in the February race, we we came to a, a very clear conclusion that, that that nobody would have gotten a majority. Um, you know, we had a lot of our friends up here, mostly divided between Brandon and Chewy. Um, you know, Lori has been my friend for thirty years. Um, you know, not gonna not gonna abandon her when she's down. Um, and, and so, you know, that was that was kind of the easy part. Then we get through the February election and we convened as a board to decide how to how to move forward. And we decided to endorse the Democrat because we're a Democratic organization. So this was one that there was there's no membership vote on uh, every general election either. You know, uh, when somebody comes out of the primary, they're the winner. And, um, you know, in this instance, it was pretty clear who the Democrat was. Right on. Uh let me uh there were a few democrats that we had a lot of respect for that came out uh for uh Vallis. i mean i'm going to put their names right out there we have bobby rush who was the minister of defense of the black panther party who has now become a christian um we had uh pat quinn who i've always liked pat he's a maverick kind of a guy but he came out for uh Vallis, and then Dick Durbin, who's looking a little older than I remember him, uh, although I did see him recently. He looks like he did then, too. Um, he, I was blown away that he came out and supported uh, Vallis. Your take on these people, particularly, uh, well, any of the three that I've mentioned, and there are probably other people who came out and supported Vallis rather than uh, Brandon Johnson, and uh, who knows what they're doing today yeah. <laughs> or in the future. Yeah, I, I mean, I will say, you know, one of the, the most striking things um, as, as folks, you know, as endorsements were rolling out was how many times former had to be used to describe an endorser of, of Mr. Vallis. Um, you know, and, you know, there's the, the, the Bill Clinton line, don't build a bridge to the past, you know, show a path to the future. Um, so that was pretty striking. Um and yeah, there were a lot of head scratchers among among those endorsements. I can't really pick, it, it, you know, I, for Bobby Rush to have done that. I, I mean, we all have our reasons for doing the things we do, right? Um, that one, that one puzzled me. <laughs> right. Um, you know, the 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 Durbin thing. Like, he's he comes from a more moderate place. You know, he he has been great on most of the progressive policies that we care about you know um you know my first lobbying interaction ever in the state uh, when i started working here was him defending an abortion ban based on voting his district 
Um, you know, he, he was a downstate congressman at that point. And, and so, like, I think we have to remember, you know, your roots are your roots. And he is fundamentally more moderate. Um, and, and, and so that one, honestly, was a little less surprising to me. Um, you know, the, the, for me, and this is personal, super personal, but the, the folks from the gay community who not only endorsed Vallis, but were among the trolliest trolls I encountered as I was pushing. Are you talking about Tony? <laughs> well, Tony and others, you know, um, it, 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 Tony didn't ever troll me. Like we have a long relationship. We understood we were in different places. Um, but, you know, the anytime I tweeted anything about the campaign or posted it on any of my socials, the, this cadre of, of white gay men would come out yelling at me about destroying the city. Um, when in reality, you know, as I said before, you know, this man has has laid down with the people that are responsible for the majority of the death threats in my state police file. Like that's that is disqualifying. And, you know, I, I said when we passed marriage equality, you know, you don't get to take your cake and go home. And, you know, that's what these folks did. They got theirs, right? We have civil rights. We have marriage. They don't care necessarily maybe that, that you know, trans kids are under attack in every state around us. They don't care maybe that, you know, th that a bakery that's had a drag brunch has been terrorized for, for months. That matters to me. And, and so those were among the most disappointing endorsements for me, frankly. Yeah. Well, you know, I'm... The other thing is who gave the money? I mean, clearly- Right, the DeVos money and all, yeah. I mean, it was- Yeah, we had Betty, Betsy DeVos, who was the Secretary of Education under the last president and is a terrible person. Um, she came in with a bunch of money. You had Uline, who I think is probably lives in Lake Forest, but I don't know where the company is. I think they're in Wisconsin now, actually. Uh, and then you had- uh, what's the other one that, that, uh, was, um, we had the Griffin who moved the Griffin out money as well. Yeah. And they, they put all this money into, you know, and that's why I don't and what know. Was, what were they expecting from it? Right. You know, that, that's what you got to wonder. That's you know, why people I would Durbin and, you know, yeah. the, that that money was coming from clearly the enemies of the people in the state that he has represented. And then, yeah. so, uh, anyhow. Yeah. Uh, and it's, you know, it's interesting. Like I've never been a person that th th there's a difference between who you accept contributions from in small ways, right? Like if, if I get tobacco money, for example, lots of people send tobacco money back. I donate it to a charity that provides healthcare, you know, like I'm not giving them back their money. What brand of tobacco is supporting you? <laughs> <laughs> um, I, in the past, I like I've gotten, I can't even remember the names, but you know, various associations that represent that stuff. You like, you'll get a check you know, out of nowhere. And, uh, what do I do with this? You know, I'm going to actually, I'm not going to put it back in their pockets. I'm going to make some good happen out of it. So there's that kind of, of like donor analysis. But when somebody is investing so heavily, you got to wonder what they think they're getting for it. Yeah. Well, it's clearly, uh, I'm glad they lost on this one, and I hope they yeah. keep listening on it. Uh, Kelly Cassidy, uh, let's talk about a little bit about what it means to have uh, Brandon Johnson as our new mayor. Um, he uh, he had a lot of union support, but clearly not all unions. There were some uh, trades. Well, that there's kind of the traditional break between public sector unions and and the trades. Um, that's you know we we see that 
usually it's more subtle, um, but you do see those divisions. He also uh, stressed uh, over and over that it was a multi-religious, multi-ethnic, multi-race, uh, cross-age, multi-age. Uh, you know, he talked about roots with Harold. I mean, Chewy took a lot of hits for talking too much about Harold. Um, yeah. Brandon probably saved it till the end after he was nearing the finish line. Yeah. His victory. Um, but, you know, he, he talks a great game. You know, I had never really heard him give a speech till last night. Uh, he was pretty impressive. Uh, yep. He had to be pretty happy that he had pulled this out. Uh, what's your take on the future now? And if you want to include some of the stuff on the the new makeup of the city council, mm -hmm. that would be a good time to do it. Sure. I mean, I think that, you know, the last election started the move towards a more functional city council, a more functional legislative body. Um, and, and I think that, you know, and I'm still kind of, digesting everything that happened in all of these other races. I, I've made a very, very conscious decision um, that I was not going to engage anywhere but in our home ward because I felt like it was so important that we get as many people out to vote and make sure that we reactivate the folks that might have been disaffected by the, the February election. So I was less engaged in a lot of those or even less aware in a lot of the other races. Um, so I'm still kind of absorbing it, but it's it's fundamentally clear that this is that the intention here is for this to be a much more functional legislative body. Um, and I think that it, that's a place where he has a bit of a leg up um, because he's been part of a legislative body. And, you know, we see this with governors who haven't necessarily had legislative experience, who don't really understand the interplay between the branches um, and and. You know, I, I we saw it with Rauner. We saw it, you know, even a little bit with Pritzker early on, um, and and with Lightfoot. Right? There's there's a there's a nuance to being the executive, but being a co-equal branch of government that doesn't exist in any other place in in your life. Um, so I think that he is well situated to to manage that and navigate that well, regardless of the ideological of the ultimate, you know, makeup of, of the, of the council, because that's the part I haven't fully absorbed yet. Um, you know, I think that, that that's, that, that gives him a significant advantage and that ability to build relationships that, that you just mentioned, that he, he comes off very warm. He's very engaging. He's very thoughtful. Um, you know, I, I didn't know him really well. We had done some movement work together prior, you know, we've had, you know, we've been on projects together, but we hadn't really hung out. Um, and, you know, spending some time with him over the last five weeks, I, I think that his, his, his personality, his persona um, will lend itself well to the role. Well, I'm looking forward to it. I think that, uh, you know, probably is a, now a time where we want to really support the new guy coming in. Um, yep. And uh, it's pretty special. What is your sense of his, uh, his ability to uh, pick people and have a lot of strong people around him. As I recall, Harold had some really good people. And, um, you know, it's really key to who you have. I mean, you know, uh, he might be able to be a strong enough guy to just do it out there on his own. But I think uh, a good team is really where it's at. Any sense on that? It doesn't feel like that the lone wolf thing is his style either, right? Like, I, I feel like he is um, he's a collaborator by nature. Um, if you look at some of his early endorsements, um, you know, he, he's got a lot of great policy chops in his close uh, in his close circle. Robert Peters is one that comes to mind 
um, you know, he, the architect of the Safety Act, uh, you know, he, having him around, Kwame, um, you know, a lot of these folks that have that that um, that that bring some real depth of, of understanding of, of policy, I think, are really going to be great assets to him. Now, what's your sense about the governor uh, and his relationship? The governor kind of took a few swipes at Vallis. Uh, in some ways. Well, Vallis took more than a few swipes at the governor over the last three years. So I think that I think I think that JB was um, the epitome of restraint uh, in, you know, holding off. And 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 I understand why, honestly, like you're the governor, you're going to have to deal with the, the mayor regardless. So I get that. Um, but I, I think that this was a good outcome for the governor as well. Yeah, I think the governor probably is glad how it came out. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Kelly, you are the state rep, so I'm going to jump uh, from city council, from uh, uh, the metropolitan area of Chicago and our new uh, mayor, uh, to a little bit about the state legislature, okay? Sure. I was looking, you know, as I do on Wednesday mornings before we record, I, I'm looking at everything I can find. And in the Springfield Daily News, the headline was, Child Care Funding Expansion Remains Focal Point for Lawmakers Going Into the Second Half of legislative calendar. Uh, then they talk about increasing access to childcare and boosting funding for childcare programs, remaining a focal point for lawmakers going into the final stretch yeah. of the spring legislative session. What's going on down there that you think is important that people should be aware of and happy about or unhappy? So or unhappy about, absolutely. So, you know, we are we're on spring break right now. So we we've both chambers have moved their initial bills to the other side. So this is like the all-star break, you know? Um, and when we go back, the, the each chamber's load is a little lighter because you're only dealing with what made it across the, the, the transom. And that's when we really get down and dirty with the budget. Um, this childcare expansion has been something that's really central to the governor's goals for, for this budget cycle. And it speaks to, first of all, his lifelong commitment to that, that early childhood education has been his thing from jump. Um, but also, you know, what we learned going into and coming out of the pandemic is is just the, the incredible, the, the, the role that childcare plays in our economy um, and also, you know, what it means to have that, that, that reliable and safe childcare, how that makes you as a parent a better employee, employer, um, you know, it, it, it's it, it's really critical. And I think that we saw the holes in our system as we were coming out of the pandemic. Um, and so that's been a commitment. Um, you know, we're also, you know, moving moving forward on, on you know, figuring out how we're going to come out of this period of relative wealth with the federal relief dollars and what programs might get hit by that. Um, you know, so so this is going to be a challenging budget year. We're, our revenues are still strong, um, but you know, the, we've we've been very very lucky to have the, these buckets of federal money available to help fill some of the gaps. So it's going to be a challenging budget. Um, you know, we are we're looking at lots of policy uh, changes coming along. You know, we're still dealing with sort of the the the, the pent up uh, policy changes that that we didn't get to during the pandemic. Um, so there's some there's some good stuff going uh, coming through. My favorite bill of the year is my my natural organic reduction bill, which is uh, otherwise known as human composting, which will allow um, permit uh, funeral directors to provide this 
very low carbon footprint way of um, uh, of dealing with your remains uh, after death. So uh, that's been a really fun bill to work on. It's the coolest thing about this job is you get to learn about stuff you never would have otherwise. Um, and, and so that one's made it over to the Senate. Senator, Senator Simmons is carrying it on the Senate side. And I anticipate that Illinois will be the seventh state to permit natural organic reduction. All right, Kelly, that's something else. <laughs> I like the sound of it, natural organic reduction. It's really, really cool. And I know we're over time, so we can talk about it more at another one if you want. Um, but it's well, a very, I, very cool process. I'm going to ask you one more question. Uh, our friend Dave Kraft from the Nuclear Energy Information Service, um, he put out his action alert. He's been pushing this heavy. And we had him on the show recently. He says, you have 14 days to help stop new nuclear power plants from coming to Illinois. He wants us to call our state reps before April 18th. Just pretend I'm calling you right now. Consider um, consider myself called. And urging opposition to SB0076, a bill that repeals Illinois nuclear reactor construction moratorium. On March 30th, that was opening day for the White Sox and the Cubs, the Illinois Senate voted 39 to 13 to repeal the Illinois 87 nuclear construction moratorium. Bill SB 76 now returns to the Illinois House for a vote sometime after April 18th. It is now up to you, to me, all of us, to prevent new reactors from being built in Illinois. 14 days to get the job done. Be less from the day this is actually aired. What's your yeah. take on that, Kelly? So this kind of speaks to that same breakdown we talked about with regard to the trades and the public sector unions. Um, you know, we th this is something that the trades want. Um, and so a lot of the moderate Democrats are, are into it, um, regardless of the environmental question. And then you get all the Republicans and suddenly you have a majority um, on the House side. The the um, the lead sponsor actually came to me uh, and it, he was walking around with a roll call, as we do. And and he informed me that the speaker had told him that uh, he would not be able to call his bill unless he could show that there were 60 Democrats willing to vote for it. And um, as he started to approach me and, and started to talk about his bill, he went, oh, never mind. You're not going to be OK with this. Um, you know, one of the things I've learned is, you know, the way the bill is written, it sounds a little bit innocuous. They talk about these mini reactors at which. You know, if you're if you if you're open to such a thing, it might sound be able to make it sound a little less scary. Um, but the reality is, anywhere. So this could be used as a as a camel's nose under the tent, foot in the door, or whatever thing you want to call it, to to get back to um, to to full nukes. And you know, for the people with those in their districts, that's a ton of jobs. And and I see when those issues come up that that very often my colleagues are between a rock and a hard place when you're talking about you know an employer of a thousand people in your district what are you going to do so that's where it gets complicated for some of my colleagues yeah well i'm glad you brought up uh peeking out from under the tent or something because when i was a young guy up in vermont visiting my brother um i was with my dad and there was a girly show at this fair and i remember kind of trying to take a peek through the opening in the tent and someone punched me in the face. So ever <laughs> since then, I've been totally, never went to a girly show. Okay. Never, ever. <laughs> this, was, uh, this was good. Um, let's get you back to talk more about uh, trans youth, uh, 
drag shows, you know. I mean, Absolutely. how many guys didn't dress up to be a woman once in a while? Anyhow, right. I don't understand all that's going on. Kelly, you're great. Got any parting words you want to throw out there to the masses who are watching or listening to our show? Go Rogers Park. This community really stepped up uh, in the last five weeks. I am beyond proud of all of the folks who who really put this campaign on their shoulders and and didn't give up even when there were moments when it looked a little bleak so uh it shows that that people power is real and all you people who uh would rather see katie hogan hosting the show than me uh she pretty much is pretty busy she does come on now and then and i'm sure we'll get her back really soon because she worked really hard on getting she she ran this campaign for us out of out of our ward office and she was amazing right on well, you're amazing, too. Keep up the good work, and I'll see you real soon in the neighborhood, Thanks. probably. Around Hope the- so. Take care. Okay, bye-bye. And bye. you all stay tuned here on the left end of your dial for more Live from the Heartland. We'll be coming up with John Melrod, uh, who has a new book out called Fighting Times, and is, he's going to recount some of his uh, experiences. And we'll talk about a few other things, too. Be right back with more Live from the Heartland. Listen up. Get ready. I'm not going to take no. There's a revolution, a revelation going on in my soul. Buckle up, get ready, we're not going to sit uh, Now, uh, I'm really honored to bring on someone who I don't know if we met each other in the past. We've known about each other. John Melrod. And, and John is a longtime activist. Uh, he's now a lawyer, and he's also an author. He has a new book out, which I have read some of. It's called Fighting Times. Uh, organizing on the front lines of the class war. And uh, John went to University of Wisconsin in Madison. And when he got out of there, before he went on to become a lawyer about 14 years later, he went into the shops, uh, probably Kenosha, Racine, Milwaukee. He could tell us about it. One reason we're having him on is because he is coming to Chicago and to Milwaukee. And just so people got it, uh, he's going to be at Pilsen Community Books on... Uh, Monday the 17th, that's 1102 West 18th Street. And then he's going to go up to Milwaukee for the 19th uh, at a place called Boswell Book Company. So we'll run that down at the end. Let's say hello. How are you, John? I'm great. And we didn't meet in the past, but I knew who you were from reading the newspaper Rising Up Angry. So it's like we knew each other. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> well, again, we are certainly comrade brothers now. Old guys writing books, working on stuff still, still in the movement. And I would like to uh, just have you do that. One of the things I do in my class at DePaul is we bring in people who will talk about the women's movement or the Young Lords or the Black Panthers, but it's also their life as a, a progressive or a radical or an organizer. Tell us a little bit about your own experience. What turned you on? I know you talk a lot about growing up in segregated Washington, D.C., and a few things happened to you there. You saw them. You went up to school in Vermont, uh, et cetera, et cetera. Give us a little story about yourself and how you got into the movement and what you've done over time. One of the things that was really valuable about writing a um, memoir was that it, it, it allowed me to examine myself and understand the reasons behind some of the things that I did. The reason I wrote the book was in 2004, I was diagnosed with terminal pancreatic cancer. And my young kids 
didn't really understand, Dad, why did you go to work in factories that are killing you now? And I decided I better quick. I was only given six months to a year to live. So I decided I better try and get my legacy down so they at least knew why their father did what he did. So that's why I wrote the book, Fighting Times, to begin with. But you're right. I grew up in D.C., and it was very so much a segregated city. I call it apartheid-like. I mean, just as a kid, you'd see it all around you. At the amusement park we used to go to, they, the students from Howard University picketed to desegregate it, and the white racists came out and started beating up on the Howard students. And eventually they threw bleach into the pool and the whole place was shut down. And as a kid, you're like, hey, it's 110 degrees in DC. Why can't black kids swim with us? And that began my thinking along the lines of something's amiss in this society. And, and then in 1964, when the... Um, police in Mississippi, and the Ku Klux Klan murdered three civil rights workers, Schwerner, Cheney, and Goodwin, even though I was only a 14-year-old and then a 15-year-old, I said, you know, that could have been me. I better do something about it. And I went to work in the civil rights movement in D.C. at the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee. And that's how I first became an activist. And of course, the Vietnam War was going on, at the same time, so we were also very active at, in high school, trying to shut down the induction center in Manchester, New Hampshire in 1967, when there were national protests to close the uh, draft centers around the country. You know, then, then I went on to school in Madison, which was like stepping into the epicenter of the in student insurgency in the country, and I was right at home, and I jumped right in, you know, my hanging out on Willie Street, throwing things, doing stuff, <laughs> just throwing things. That's all. And uh, somebody said to me, you know, why is it? One of the reviewers said Melrod talks in the first person till he gets to Madison and he was protesting the Vietnam War. How come he changed to the third person at that point? So, like I said, just throwing things. But in any event, you know, we were very active in opposing the war supporting Black students striking for ethnic studies and the admission of more Black students. And it's an interesting lesson. At the height of that Black student strike, 10,000 people marched on the Capitol in Madison. Almost all of them were white. So when I hear all this talk now, whites won't support Black students, won't support ethnic studies, won't support critical race theory, I say, that's bullshit. You know, if you lay the basis in education, and you go out there and organize, you defeat that kind of narrow-minded thinking. And the fact that one-third of the student body protested marching to the Capitol is a living example of that. But, you know, during that, the, the huge Vietnam protest that took place when Nixon invaded Cambodia and when the students were killed at Kent State, four students were shot and killed by the National Guard, I also participated in the labor activities of the United Front. So I went out to all the factories and workplaces in Madison and rallied people against the war and was really excited and impressed. One of the stewards at the Oscar Mayer plant proposed that we hold a rally against the war. And a lot of that drove me to want to leave Madison to go to work 
in the working class, in union movement, in factories to organize, because it was apparent that without building the movement among that sector of the United States population, you weren't going to really make fundamental change in the U.S. So that's when I went into to working in industry. And you ended up working at a United Auto Workers uh, organized plant in uh, where, in Milwaukee or in I initially went to work in Milwaukee um, and worked there for about nine months. And then we had led some very big struggles. You know, those were the days when there were so many activists, Black and Latino, coming back from Nam. And there were, you know, young white kids who were kind of Woodstock generation. So we were really rebels. And when they tried to force us to work overtime, you know, I found the contract provision that said it was voluntary and we spread the word. They couldn't get a workforce. Then when they added three cars an hour to our job every hour without taking any work off, we organized the first mass fight against speed up of the assembly line. And what was remarkable was that the old guys became active because they had been fighting this their whole lives. And they taught us how to what we called ride the line, which meant you didn't leave the car you were working on until you finished your whole job with the added work. And that pushed the next guy out of his job station and the next person further out of theirs. So the cars weren't getting built. They were all being pushed off into the repair holes until we beat the company. They took work off the jobs. They hired more people off the streets and we beat the, we beat the speed up. Well, at that point, the company freaked out, went to the FBI and said, hey, we got this guy Melrod and he's causing all kinds of problems, raising hell, forming a caucus in the union. What do we do? And I've got the FBI memos up on my website. If people go to it, it's just jonathanmelrod.com. The FBI told them, get rid of him. This is going on all over the city in factories. These are people from the Revolutionary Union. And, you know, you got to discharge him. Well, a couple of days after that memo was wrote, written, security guards came up with the head of labor relations and they picked me up off my feet because I refused to leave. And they dragged me out of, off down the assembly line. People were yelling to sit down because nobody had ever been fired at that plant for fighting, you know, working conditions and speed up. But they threw me out of the plant onto the sidewalk. And I remember looking up and saying, someday I'm going to be back here and I'm going to prove to you that David can beat Goliath. And it took me two and a half years and it took me a real battle at a union meeting where we called for a strike vote. But the international came in, quashed it, said to people, you don't want to lose your jobs for this young radical. And the president, even though we had won the vote, ruled that we had lost it. Then I went to the National Labor Relations Board, and it took two and a half years till I went to the Seventh Circuit Court of Appeals in the Chicago area that ordered me back to work, and I went to work in the Kenosha AMC plant. Uh, did you mention the, our Revolutionary Union? Were you in that organization? Yeah, I was in the Revolutionary Union, which at that time, you know, things changed as history went on, but at that time really did some, I think, good work and yeah. we were putting out, we put out a, bu a buddy of yours, Bill Drew, um, who that's how we sort of became reintroduced. Yeah. He was editor of the Milwaukee Worker. 
and we used to sell it in front of the plants. And I used to sell some hundred copies in front of American Motors. I mean, people really read it and listened to it. And it was a it was a good it was a good effort. It wasn't overly sectarian or or overly lectury toward the workers. It really came from the struggles that were being waged in auto factories and in steel and in all and mining all over the country. I like I miss selling papers. I really loved uh, you know, I put out the Heartland Journal after I did the Rising Up Angry, and I always was involved in putting out papers. Now I'm working on books. But uh, you did mention, uh, we're talking United Auto Workers, and I have a very good friend who I went to college with, Carol Travis, whose father was fighting Bob Travis, who led the Flint Strikes. And there is a book called uh, Midnight in Motor City, I think, which I read about that. Actually, he was a customer at the Heartland. Um, but I'm wondering if uh, I could get you to talk a little bit about the United Auto Workers today. You know, I always liked them. I gave a talk once with Dr. King and Emil Macy from the United Auto Workers. Uh, he grew up as a kind of liberal guy like in Ruther, the Ruther brothers. Um, but, uh, you know, things weren't always as good as we thought or hoped. Um, and uh, there's a, they just had an election where a guy named Sean Fain, a union staffer and formerly local UAW leader out of Kokomo, Indiana, has was uh, elected. But there's been a bunch of questioning back and forth about the votes. What's your take on the status of the UAW today and what's going on? Yeah, I'd love to answer that. Let me just go back a slight bit in history because it's it's very pertinent to what, what's occurring today. You know, we had the best contract in the United Auto Workers at American Motors. We had the right to strike over all grievances. We had one steward for every 35 employees and a steward only had to be on his job or her job a half hour a day, and then they could be on union business. And we had voluntary overtime. That used to exist throughout the entire auto industry. But Victor, not Victor, Victor was a close friend of mine, Victor Ruther, but his brother Walter got rid of all three of those benefits that we had won in the big three, because he didn't want strikes breaking out in between contracts. So he basically built the UAW as a union that could deliver on wages. We had the best wages. We had COLA, cost of living on our hourly wage. We had the most vacation time, et cetera. But what he gave up for that was the power on the shop floor. And in, in American Motors, our UAW locals kept that power. In fact, in 1969, there were 13 wildcat strikes in one week between the Kenosha and the Milwaukee plant. And Lunenberg, the president of AMC, went to Walter Ruther and says, you got to get these crazy guys under control. Well, Ruther tried, but he never did. So to the end, we maintained a democratic rank and file run union. Let's get to the international today. In 83, we led a movement to fight for this one member, one vote, where all the members in the United Auto Workers would vote for the officers of the union. We, Our local pledged $100,000 nationally to wage that campaign. And we really put up a fight. We had gotten 30 locals to put resolutions endorsing the changing of the voting structure. When we got to the convention, uh, we called a meeting the first night. 100 delegates showed up. 
And when it came time to fight for that motion on the floor, I led the floor fight. And, you know, Ruther had his administration caucus, where it was all the loyal guys who he had appointed to staff jobs. And as I was talking, they were hooting, they were yelling, and we put up a hell of a fight. Doug Fraser, who was president of the union at the time, said he ruled that we lost the vote. But he went to the press and he says, I haven't had to fight like that in the entire time I've run conventions. So I feel like we laid the groundwork for the victory this year that members were able to vote for international officers. And there's been a big change. A lot of them are reformists who want to reinvigorate the union. They want to get rid of this lousy two-tier system where you can be working next to a young guy and he's making a lot less than you and he doesn't got pension rights. They're pledged to get rid of that. The problem is that we still have 300 or so reps from the old days, from the days of the administration caucus. So they're the ones that are challenging the vote. They're not making it easy for the new leadership to take over the union. So it's going to be a real battle September 15th when this contract expires in the big three to see if they can, in fact, have enough influence to really take on the auto companies and fight to restore some of those benefits that we had won years back that were given up in concession bargaining. Uh, John Melrod, let me uh, ask you, uh, one of the things that I, I got from your book was the excitement, the thrill of, uh, you know, of the action of the wildcat, a shutdown, a picket line, uh, stopping people from crossing a picket line. I will tell a little story. We heard they were hiring at Sikorsky Aircraft when we were in high school. We went up there in, in Connecticut. In Connecticut. Yeah, we, okay. We went up there in a 37 Plymouth, just like the old days. Uh, when We were all in a hot rod pub then. And there was a strike going on, and I didn't know anything about it. And we crossed over, filled out our applications, and when we came back out, they hit the car with signs and yelled at us. And I remember going home and talking to my dad. <laughs> and I said, what was that? He, you know, so I've never crossed a picket line since. Um, there you go. But let's, uh, why don't you share with us maybe a little story about uh, the kind of the thrill of the action? something that uh, happened that you want to tell us about. Yeah, to understand the thrill of the action, you've got to understand the misery of every day humping the assembly line. I mean, it is a mind-numbing, physically exhausting, just difficult experience. And you're chained to that job. It's one car a minute, all day, every day. And the boss has complete control over your life. You got to raise your hand to go to the bathroom. You know, you got to raise your hand to go to the nurse. So you're at, their, you're at their mercy day to day. And that's what people have to put up with on the job. But come contract time, we'd organize people, let's walk out at midnight when the contract expires if we haven't won everything that we want. And that doesn't just happen spontaneously. We'd organize on the second shift We'd give out to these black motorcycle club guys whistles. The minute the contract expired at 12 o'clock, they'd be blowing those whistles. They'd be chanting, walk out on strike, and out would stream thousands of people. And the, the, the excitement, the feeling of freedom that you broke the chains, even if it was for that moment, 
was exuberant. You know, people just felt like we have power. That's the collective feeling that you get in a strong union, in an industrial setting, when you stand up to the boss, which you can do, anyone can do it. And that's why I hope people come hear me at Pilsen on the uh, on the 17th. Oh, I mean, it is the 17th, yeah, Monday the 17th. Yeah, because we're just touching on the book right now, not even getting in to the most fun stories. Well, I'm, you know, I didn't read all of it. I read some of it. Uh, and I really am enjoying it. Why don't you, uh, be, as we go out, we're going to give the places you're going to be while you're in the Midwest. But why don't you tell us um, your assessment of the labor movement today? And there's a lot of activity. You know, it's not quite like United Auto Workers uh, as much as a Starbucks, et cetera, et cetera. But there is motion to organize people. Um, and it's happening all across the country. Uh, talk a little bit about that, John. Yeah, I'm really excited. Um, you know, I didn't know at 72, I'd feel reinvigorated about the union movement. But because of my book, I've gotten to meet organizers who have gotten my book and then Instagrammed me or texted me at Starbucks, at Trader Joe's, where they just had a march on the boss in Oakland to present their union cards that they want an election. I'm working with some of the people at AOL. I mean, I've really gotten to meet these young militants that are revitalizing the union movement. And I'm pretty excited about what they're doing. They are, they've got a politically broad mind. They look at it. They don't just talk about we need better pay. They talk about we need to save the planet. Right so they look at it as a struggle, an existential struggle for us that we need to wage on many fronts. So I, it's a pleasure for me to see them excited about my book. And I'm equally as excited about being able to work with them, which I do every week on a regular basis. You're going to be at a bookstore called the Pilsen Community Books, 1102 West 18th Street, on Monday the 17th. Is that right? That's right, at 7 o'clock. At 7 o'clock. And then you're going to take a day off, and maybe we'll, we'll get together. I'm going to try and come see you on that Monday. But on Wednesday the 19th, you're going up to our uh, sister city, so to speak, where they once had a socialist mayor up in Milwaukee at Boswell Book Company. Um, and that's also at seven o'clock. No, that one's actually at 6.30. 6.30, okay. And the book, once again, is Fighting Times, and it's put out by uh, PM Press, which is an anarchist press, as I recall. That's right. And um, you got anything else you want to share? We got about a minute left. Give us a little bit, a little enthusiastic rap, a little bit of uh, whatever you want to share. Well, right now, there's the greatest support for trade union, for the union movement that there's been in 50 years. I think it's at 71%, which really gives us the opportunity to get in there and organize the unorganized. I'm working with a couple of guys who I met down south in the southeast. That's become industrial America. People should not forget there's two industrial powers in the world today, China and the US. And so we are still an industrial country. And these young people are, some of them have gone down south to organize. And there's auto plants, there's EV plants, there's EV parts plants, there's truck plants. I got a guy I'm working with who works in a UAW shop where they make electric buses. This is a time for young people who want to be socialists in the trade union movement 
to take a look at going in, taking those jobs if they really want to change the world and see what it's like to work there. You'll learn every day. You'll learn from the camaraderie of people on the assembly line. And you've got a chance to make a real difference in the world going forward. Well, you're a hell of a guy, John Melrod. And I'm looking forward to actually meeting you in person, uh, not just knowing about you. So we're going to see you on Monday, the uh, 17th, uh, at uh, Pilsen Community Books. I hope I can bring my buddy Bob Lawson, who did work for the UAW for a while as an organizer. Uh, he comes out of Rising Up Angry. I'll try to pump up uh, some right. And I want to thank you for hitting me up, telling me about your book, coming on the show. And I'm going to come back to you over and over as one of our key labor reporters on Live from the Heartland. I appreciate it. I appreciate you giving me the time. I want to thank everybody for tuning in into this week's Live from the Heartland show. It is for the week of the 8th of April. We will be back next week. And just so you remember, you can always get this show not only aired and streamed on Saturday morning on WLUW, but it's on Google and Spotify podcasts. And it's on Can TV on Thursday nights at 9 o'clock, Channel 21. And you can always get it at YouTube.com slash Heartland Media slash videos. And I want to thank our guest today, John Melrod, talking about his new book and other things called Fighting Times. We also had Kelly Cassidy, our state representative from Illinois 14, talking about the election. Uh, we got a lot of guests coming up. We've got Koya Paz coming up from Free Street Theater. Gordon Mantler on a book on Harold Washington and the multi-racial promise. Who knows? We got a lot of people out there. I want to thank Al James for engineering the show. I want to thank um, co-hosts sometimes Katie Hogan and Tom Clark and our musical producer Lynn Orman. Um, there's a lot to celebrate. Uh, we've had some victories. We'll have more as long as we keep working hard. You need a lot of information to do that. We'll keep it coming. All power to the people. We'll see you next week. a dream awaiting I can see it in your eye it may not come easy but you know you've got a friend I'll be by your side the entire ride just let me hear you say amen are you doing doing are you doing the best you can Tell me, are you doing?